You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, your source for art, culture, politics, and religion. Serious conversation that tries not to take itself too seriously. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also like our Facebook page for more content and conversation. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Do whatever that you like, do whatever, baby, cause I, oh, I don't care, yeah, yeah, it's alright, alright, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Hello, everyone. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. As always, I'm Danny Anderson, Assistant Professor of English here at Mount Aloysius College and host of this show. All right, so this is truly a special episode of the show, and I know that I cannot wait to get it started. Joining me today is the great Lauren Coleman, who is without a question one of the most prominent figures in the world of cryptozoology. Uh, Mr. Coleman has written dozens of books on the subject and has appeared in countless television and radio programs as well, providing research and background information on Bigfoot, Mothman, Jersey Devils, Loch Ness Monsters, and a host of other cryptids. Uh, And if you happen to find yourself in Maine, uh, where he's from, uh, do your a favor and make a trip into Portland to visit the International Cryptozoology Museum, which is in many ways the culmination of Coleman's life work. I had the pleasure of visiting last summer and take it from me, it's wonderful. So let me just say from the outset, I've loved this kind of stuff since I was a kid, so today's show is kind of a fantasy come to life for me. So let me just jump right into the interview. Uh, Mr. Coleman, thanks so much for taking the time. How are you today, sir? Great. Well, it's, it's fun to be here and I'm glad to talk to anybody that's as enthusiastic about the subject as I am. So thank you for inviting me on. Oh, the pleasure's all on this end. Um, How are things at the museum? Oh, very good, very good. Of course, uh, since we moved to the new location July 1st, we always are wondering, how would it be? How would this new location? Because we were in downtown Portland, and we figured a lot of people walked up where we were before, as well as people from cruise ships and people who tried to uh, drive there. With the new location, what we're finding is because we have free parking, because it's a, a really a new entertainment center, everything's clean. We're next to a brewery, which is next to a winery, which is uh, <laughs> there's a distillery on the other end. There's a, a circus main uh, and uh, a pottery painting place. So it's it's kind of a new entertainment center. So we're actually discovering that our admissions are about 35% over last year. So we're oh. very happy. Excellent. Very. That's great news. Uh, and I have to say, I actually uh, took the time to visit that brewery next door, and it was it was quite <laughs> spectacular. So, um, <laughs> there's a line uh, very, out the very door. Very popular. Yeah, there is. It usually <laughs> yeah. is. 
Yeah. Well, uh, let me get started uh, with some basics for this particular audience, which may be a little unfamiliar with the subject. Cryptozoology, in broad brushstrokes, is the sci- is the study of scientifically unrecognized creatures. But it isn't just about Bigfoot and Thunderbirds, right? The, the logo of your museum has a rather famous fish that actually does exist on it, after all. Uh, can you give us a brief intro into the field? Sure. Well, cryptozoology is the study of hidden or unknown animals. Those are animals that uh, indigenous peoples usually report, and that's everybody from, you know, deepest, darkest Africa, as it is unfortunately called, to Southeast Asia, to New Guinea, all of those places that everybody thinks about in terms of indigenous peoples, native people, but also the way we frame it and the way that cryptozoology looks at it is locals whether they're in Pennsylvania or in Maine or in Russia, they still are the locals and they have an experience with their local wildlife. So we go and we interview those individuals. We look for native art. We look for old traditions and folklore. And then the next step is to look for physical evidence. And with the whole goal being that new species will be discovered eventually if you just look for them. Uh, And, of course, we're skeptical and we're critical thinkers, too. So, uh, for instance, I know very clearly from my 57 years in the field that 80% of all of the ones that we investigate, all these cryptids, as we call them, uh, turn out to be hoaxes, turn out to be uh, mistakes or misidentifications. Hoaxes are only about 1% of that 80%. But that is the part of cryptozoology that the mass media mostly talks about. So uh, most people really come to an opinion about cryptozoology based upon Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, as you were saying, even though it can be a new lizard in the hills of India, or it could be a new fish deep in the ocean. And so we come to the coelacanth. The coelacanth is our logo. It's a fish that was actually discovered uh, in 1938 uh, in South Africa, near South Africa. It had not been seen uh, in the zoological record uh, for 65 million years. Of course, the local people that had caught the fish uh, called it the gambaza, and they would eat it, and uh, it's about five and a half to six feet long. They would never throw it back. They would use it. And they would eat it. But uh, Westerners, Western scientists, Western uh, curators, and, and different people didn't have any experience with this fish. So when it came into the consciousness of uh, of science, it was really a shocker. And so we decided to take it as our logo because, indeed, in Portland, Maine, we're on the coast. We're interested in cryptozoology in terms of what's discovered and not just uh, folklore. Exactly. Um, And so this show is 
largely interested in the imagination in general. And I think that's what draws me to this subject is it's science, right? But it's, it's thinking of, of scientific discovery with a bit of wonder <laughs> and, and the idea of taking seriously the folklore of these native people from a Western perspective and, and, and trying to uh, somehow merge science and, uh, and the imagination. And, and I think that that's probably if I were to psychoanalyze myself, what draws me so much to this sort of, uh, this sort of material. Well, well, it's certainly important to us, too. We have uh, various threads throughout the museum where we look at popular culture and we see how cryptozoology inspires it. For instance, the coelacanth, which was discovered in 1938, and then uh, the second one was found in 52, it inspired the making of the movie Creature from the Black Lagoon oh. in, in 1954. And uh, also, a lot of people talk about the kappas. Kappas are little turtle-like creatures uh, seen in Japan, and those inspired the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> so we do all those kinds of linkages in the museum and the exhibits, so people can see that cryptozoology is very much alive in our popular cultures. Uh, that was one of my favorite sections of the museum. I was going to say at some point today that the all the artifacts of popular culture, and in fact, you yourself were written into. Was it Swamp Thing? <laughs> did, I, did I remember yes, this? Yes, yes, yes. I was on the uh, cover of Swamp Thing, in which uh, I was. The character was called uh, Coleman Wadsworth, and <laughs> he chases after Yetis and Swamp Thing and different things. And I actually got involved in the field in 1960 when I watched a Japanese movie called Half Human, which mm. was about the Yeti. And then I went to school and asked my teachers, what was this about the Yeti? And they had three answers for me. Uh, they don't exist. Get back to your studies. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, that stimulated me to get more, more interested and more information. Yes. Yeah, that was uh, a nice lead into my next question. What you, you have a, an impressively diverse academic background. Uh, can you tell us what exactly what fields you come out of that you were bringing to this field? Sure. Uh, when I, I actually in high school, I was very much interested in the sciences. And, uh, I was to I thought in my brain that I was going to be a scientist. So I, I remember early on. As a freshman in high school, I was told, you need to take German if you wanted to be a scientist. I mean, this was 1961, so I took German. I did not do too well, but uh, I tried hard. But I was very interested in the natural sciences. I was interested in audiovisuals and, and a whole bunch of other subjects. Uh, and I was, you know, your usual nerd in uh, the 1960s. Then I went on to college, and I actually uh, majored in anthropology and um, minored in zoology because I felt that I was, in terms of anthropology, was uh, going to go the physical anthropology, or nowadays it's called biological anthropology. Mm. And so I, I did that, and I was, of course, thinking about uh, Yeti and Bigfoot and and that direction because I was very involved with cryptozoology even back then. And then, of course, the reality sets in that you have to really get a job after a <laughs> BA, usually. Yes. Because, uh, 
my I came from a working class family, so every, everything I did and have done was because I worked for it. So I I went into the mental health field. I um I was found to be a very good uh, counselor, a very good individual to work with emotionally disturbed children, and and I very quickly got married after college and had to keep that job because, of course, children cost money. <laughs> and and uh, I was writing all the time on the side and doing cryptozoology, and but uh, I decided uh, that the quickest master that I could get was a master's in psychiatric social work. And I was very privileged to study under... Uh, I was actually the pet of a professor, and that professor was Sophie Freud. Oh. <laughs> which is a grand granddaughter of uh, Sigmund Freud. And I oh. studied at uh, Boston, uh, Boston's Simmons College and felt very privileged to have that um, involvement. At the same time when I was in my undergraduate work, uh, Bucky Fuller, who was a Fortean, uh, a, you know, a follower of Charles Fort, I got very involved with uh, that kind of line of thinking as far as mm. design. But anyway, I slowly would get one job after another until I got in an academic situation in Maine when I moved here in 1983. And I started making films as well as teaching a film course, mm. a documentary film course. And one-third of the course was about cryptozoology. Mm. I would actually have History Channel camera people who wanted to do interviews with me come into class and film me in front of my students. So it was, you know, a great opportunity to show them how boring being filmed was for three hours <laughs> at three minutes, but also how, how you know, producers ask the same questions 15 times uh, from different. So it was a very great learning experience, and I was able to combine a lot of my interest in like filmmaking and sociology and psychiatric social work and and I did go through I did enter two different PhD programs uh, but I don't know how it happened but every time I got admitted for a PhD program my wife would get pregnant <laughs> <laughs> so I had a year nine months actually to think am I going to be able to do this or should I be a, a full-time father well, full-time father kept winning out because graduate departments back then wanted 150% of your time. Right. And I, I, want, I wanted to be a present father. So so I've been in a sociology, uh, a social anthropology PhD program. I've been in a um, actually a social uh, sociology family violence program. I never finished both of them, but... I keep waiting for a university to ask me to speak so I can get my honorary PhD, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> I, it's kind of like I'm still waiting for the MacArthur grant, but I think I may die before then. That's, that's why I decided to make a museum instead of wait for somebody else to make my life more complete. <laughs> well, I I, I uh, admire your decision making. I mean, that was uh, uh, you, yeah. I, I think you made the right choices. Right. Well, I'm very proud of my my son. So it's it was a good decision.
<laughs> well, um, I, that is so great. I had no idea about most of that. That's so interesting. Um, well, I, I think of you as uh, a bit like an Indiana Jones, which for me is a high compliment. So I want to hear some uh, some adventure stories. Uh, can you share one or two of your favorite uh, experiences? Is there an incident or a piece of evidence that you find co- uh, especially compelling? Sure, sure. Well, it, it, it is interesting living uh, and being able to live to the age of the internet, because I remember in 1995 when I discovered emails and the internet and all that, everybody had this situation where they get on the internet, and I noticed right away that every time somebody would go out on a weekend a camping trip, it was an expedition, <laughs> you know, and, and they'd take along their six-pack of beer and their friends, and they'd be looking for Bigfoot, or they'd be going to a lake monster area. And I kept reading about all these expeditions and realized that I'd been in the field since 1960, so I was thinking, wow, I must have had all those expeditions where I didn't find anything, but there was no venue for me to write them up, you know, online to share that I was this great Indiana Jones-type character. (laughs) So I felt like I'd failed. I mean, I wrote books, but I didn't think about myself as as an expedition person. I thought about, this is the way you investigate. You go out, uh, you know, you like I went to the Trinity Alps, uh, and that was that would have been the mid-70s, because I actually moved to California for a couple of years to investigate Bigfoot and work in mental health out there in Tiburon and Mill Valley and San Francisco. It was great, great, great times, pre-AIDS and all of that. But um, it actually was interesting because I, for instance, I went out on an expedition. I would call it an expedition today. But back then, I just decided to take an extended investigative trip into the Trinity Alps uh, uh, with a a young female partner of mine at the time. Hmm. And we camped out in, in the woods, and we'd put peanut butter out on a a log and did all of the things to entice Bigfoot. It was an area that was very hot where people had seen Bigfoot near their cars and actually uh, Bigfoot had come so close that it snapped off the antenna. People don't even know what antennas are on cars anymore. (laughs) Kind of like I used to write people through letters and get 40 letters a day and people can't imagine that was really, that really happened. But anyway, so I would do things like that, and I, uh, most of my adventures, as I would really capture them in my brain, were unsuccessful, but they were fun. And I learned a lot about people. I've been to every state in the United States doing investigations. Uh, when I moved to Massachusetts, uh, to I moved first and then I got into graduate school there, uh, I actually, one of the best cases that has the most texture is the Dover Demon because I, I was working, running the overnight program, uh, doing a, a, a placement where I was counseling young kids and going to full, uh, school full-time. So I had a full-time placement, full-time school, and full-time job all at mm. the same time because I ran the overnight program. And I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I had the energy, but I did all of that. And in the midst of that, I still would take days off, and I would go to this little 
antique store nearby over in Dover, Massachusetts. I was in Needham, right across the Charles River. And I saw this drawing there, and, and I started talking to the clerk, and she told me how to get in touch with that person. And what was really amazing was to discover these four individuals <coughs> who had seen the Dover Demon, and I, it was a term I, I named it, because I gave file names that usually had alliteration. Yeah. Like, I, you know, coined the Montauk Monster, Phantom Panthers. <laughs> it was just a little trick that I, my, I was able to remember them easier that way. But the Dover you, Demon wait, was... You came up with the name Montauk Monster? Yes, yes. Oh, Oh, that's a, oh, awesome. All right. Yeah. And and so when I interviewed these people, it was like within four or five days after their sighting, depending on when I could catch up with them. And they literally relived the experience in front of me, just like it was 9-11 or mm. the JFK assassination. And that really, uh, it, without me making any value judgment about, was this a hoax? Was it a joke? Was it a prank? I was able to see in their nonverbal communications as well as their speech patterns that they definitely had a very real experience that scared them and they were living through it again to tell me about it. And so uh, that Dover Demon experience, a creature that really doesn't exist in terms of physical zoology that we know about, um, was was intriguing to me. And... Mm. uh, got me the first notion of of kind of mainstream publicity so quickly uh, because mm. the Boston media was so interested in that. So, um, and then what I did was bring in some other investigators to re-interview those people. So it was in many of my books, uh, or at least some of my books and some of my talks, the Dover Demon is often discussed because for me it, it became a, um, a sort of a test tube case of what the best things to do. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I, I so I happen to like Mothman uh, as a as a story. Um, could you want to uh, for the reason? So I'm interested in religion, right? And Mothman has this kind of uh, prophetic sort of function in folklore at least do you want to talk a little bit about that uh subject i know you worked a little bit on the publicity for the the mothman prophecies movie i believe right and so um do you want to talk a little bit about mothman sure um mothman of course was a series of sightings that happened from 1966 to 67 in point pleasant west virginia and uh it's it's unfortunately a story that has grown and warped based more on the media and more on other researchers than the reality of the case. Mm. Well, what I noticed and what I wrote about in my book and whenever I, I actually did 400 radio interviews in two months for Sony screen, uh, screen gems. And, uh, and it really was a case that was about a large bird. Uh, people would, the first Four people, two couples that saw it, described it as an angel uh, walking towards them or a large bird. Uh, there was nothing about it being an insect or uh, anything like that. The word Mothman came about because of a copy editor in a Ohio newspaper mm. who was a fan of the Batman series 
And so that copy editor gave it the name Mothman. So anyway, so it was seen as a giant bird. It was called Big Bird in the newspaper. And then it slowly morphed into this creature that had arms and different things like that. My um, recently late friend Mark Hall wrote a a book called Thunderbird. I wrote uh, in my Mothman book that this was a creature that actually... Uh, was reported almost like it was a giant owl. Mm. Uh, and and then it's... Uh, one thing I want to... Before I forget about um, the whole aspect of it that you're interested in, was it a prophecy? Was it a banshee that's connected to the Irish religion? Yeah. All of those things came about because of the incredible strong personality of John Keel. Mm. Uh, John Keel was a ufologist, but he wasn't a ufologist. He actually, uh, in interviews that I conducted of him uh, for my book, he was a friend, but I still put myself in the interviewer position so he would treat me a little bit differently and not like a friend. I said, you know, are you a ufologist? And he said, no, no, I hate that word. I'm actually a demonologist. Okay. He thought that all of these were elementals, that it were demons, and that there was this dark side of Mothman. That, and he's the one that uh, really saw the men in black, uh, the elementals, the, the different people even around Mount Misery, New York, that were involved in prophecies and uh, more the psychic aspect of it. And then Uh he combined it all together and he was really in his book, he was really trying to relate it to Hindi Hindi, um, not prophecy, but Hindi kind of bird-like creatures that were involved with all of this. And it was Saturday Evening Press that put the Mothman prophecies on the title of the book. And then John worked the book around how the title of the book really, in some ways, uh, the sightings then predicted the collapse of the bridge. For those people that haven't read the book, I hope I didn't spoil it for you. There's a a massive collapse of a bridge that supposedly the sightings of this giant bird-like creature really was the banshee to let people know something was going to happen. Oh, I can hear the anthropologist in you uh, as you talk about this, though, because you're seeing how sort of folklorish sorts of um, belief systems intersect with scientific discoveries uh, or potential scientific discoveries in this case about this these giant a giant bird, perhaps, uh, and and how those things become kind of a mythology in American culture. Uh, and I think that that's a that's a really insightful um, breakdown that you just gave us about that 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 whole story. Yeah. Well, I I think, you know, I'm very much a follower of Heuvelman's, too. Um, Bernard Heuvelman's, the godfather of cryptozoology, who, um, besides Ivan Sanderson, actually had uh, coined the word. And he he felt that Native peoples, uh, the first contact individuals with these different creatures, made them into fantastic beasts. So you could have, uh, you know, a four-foot-long giant lizard that would all of a sudden become a dragon. Mm. Uh, and he really saw 
that that was an important part of cryptozoology, that a lot of people were being too literal. They were really not understanding the ethnographic part of this, which is that if you see an animal and it's in the dark and it's hairy and you're scared, you're going to increase the size. You're going to increase the the wow factor. And that really has to be taken into account as a zoologist about trying to figure out what kind of animal are you really trying to pursue. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that whole sort of witness reliability question in moments of trauma or fright, uh, that, uh, that is a very important part of of the thing, a very important thing to take into consideration. Uh, I think when talking about these kinds of questions, um, yeah, and it's really easy then to slip from making those fantastic creatures, uh, merely big beasts to gods and, you know, folkloric, angelic and other aspects that may be more religious in some people's conceptions than what somebody else might be thinking. Yes, exactly. Um, well, I, I guess it's a, a nice segue into another question I have. For me, and, and for, I think for most of my audience, the imagination is something that's very special, and it's probably what draws me to your work and, and to the work of people like you. Uh, and I feel like when you're presenting evidence for something that we've yet to officially discover, you are injecting science with a much needed needed dose of imagination. Uh, do you see your work like that? I mean, what does cryptozoology have to offer us beyond just mere entertainment? Well, uh, let me back up a minute and make uh, one distinction that's very important for people that come to the museum. Uh, a lot of people come in and they really don't understand cryptozoology, and they immediately say, well, is this about unicorns? (laughs) Is this this about uh, the centaur? Uh, Is this about harpies? And one of the things, still, there's, of course, a gray area between the two, but the way I've always understood myths, myths are creatures uh, that come from human imagination. Uh, the cryptids that we study in cryptozoology are legendary. They really come from human experience. Mm. So it's as if there's a fire below and the smoke that comes up from cryptids, from the experience of people having interactions with them, become legendary creatures. Whereas a lot of our great thinkers and our uh, you know ancient peoples came up with absolutely imaginary creatures that have nothing to do with cryptozoology. Mm. Those are the mythical creatures. So um, let me just, I just wanted to throw that in. As far as, uh, you know, what you're getting to with uh, the way of looking at cryptids and imagination, what I see going on is cryptids are real, What, and I mean that in terms of Everyone knows what a Bigfoot is. Mm. Everyone has a real experience with what Bigfoot is, even if they never turn out to be physically real. They're psychologically and physiologically and sociologically real. So people use them to sell beef jerky. (laughs) You know, they they do a... Bigfoot boxes, you know, that are called Bigfoot boxes or 
Uh, they make pizza that is in a huge square box, and nobody buys them, so the big <laughs> pizza goes away. But it's a product-oriented thing in our culture. The commercialism and capitalism are using people's imaginations about what these cryptids do to then sell products. And I think that's the, the most frequent physical manifestation of cryptids that people see through capitalism. Mm. And that's and the way they get there is through their imagination, not through any, you know, most of the people that I talk to have never seen a Bigfoot. They've never seen a track. They've never heard a screech. Uh, all that they've done is take a bat into the woods and knock the bat against a tree and think that they hear sounds in the in the distance that it's a Bigfoot uh, communicating with them. Yeah. Is that their imagination? Is that their hope? Is that their uh, whatever? I don't know. But, uh, but then they go into uh, a convenience store and they buy beef jerky if it says Bigfoot on it. Right. Appealing to them. That is really interesting. Um, I have to, I'm, you got, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about what you just said and the idea that, um, you know, capitalism, economic activity picks up, uh, products of the imagination, packages it and resells it back <laughs> to people to sort of supplement their imagination. I, I just think that's such a fascinating process that you've, uh, opened up for us here and, and one that I wasn't necessarily expecting to get to. Um, Wow, that's that was really terrific. Um, I know that you're a busy man, and I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I do want to talk, let you talk a little bit about the museum, though. Uh, I know that you guys are doing some fundraising here recently, and um, I know that, like I said, my kids and I, we loved it. Uh, my youngest one, she was particularly infatuated with the Little Mermaid. I think it was a, a P.T. Barnum mermaid or something. And then uh, my oldest one thought the fur-bearing trout was hilarious. And and so uh, it, it's a really great place to visit, and we had a great time. And uh, and so I just want you to, if you can, talk a little bit about what's going on there. Sure. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think all of those things that you just mentioned are in the uh, the hoax slash fakes corner of the museum where we really do encourage people to use critical thinking. Yeah. Really. Uh, the the P.T. Barnum, that is an actual model used in the, the P.T. Barnum movie uh, by A&E in 1999. So it's the only uh, actual um, movie artifact from that movie. Mm. That so we have a and then we, of course, have the fur-bearing trout and uh, some of the chupacabras that aren't. There's sort of two kinds of chupacabras, the Puerto Rican ones that are more cryptids, and then a lot of fakes and uh, artifacts from that end of it that are in that corner. And the fur-bearing trout, of course, being in Maine, a lot of people actually believe it exists because, of course, fish have to have fur on them to survive <laughs> But the, the museum in general is 10,000 artifacts spread out in two floors. Uh, it, I founded it in 2003 because uh, I actually, uh, all these years that I've been investigating and traveling and uh, having experiences, mostly interviewing people and investigating cases, I was very aware that a lot of the cultural material that I was seeing, whether or not somebody would have a, 
a Bigfoot festival or a, a one-time conference that I would collect artifacts from those cultural experiences. But also there was lots of evidence that would come my way. Uh, of course, plaster cast, over 200 plaster casts, but pieces right. of wood for, from Ohio uh, that I was shown, oh, here, a Black Panther bit through this fence as it was trying to get my sheets. So I would keep that piece of evidence because, you know, who do you show it to? You show it to a cryptozoologist. Well, I happen to be a cryptozoologist, so, you know, you can't take it to a university to say, would you test this? Those were, that was in the 70s when nobody was thinking about saliva and DNA. Right. Uh, but there's there's other things like uh, the pieces of the tail of a sea serpent that turned out to be a basking shark or, uh, you know, I have a, a letter and uh, some hair from Sir Edmund Hillary uh, uh, that he collected in Nepal in 1960. The Tom Slick expedition where he did fecal material from a Yeti that we have on display. So we have this combination of real artifacts, real pieces of evidence, as well as artifacts that uh, are in our culture called toys. And toys really is the Western cultural way of showing Native uh, art. Uh, and maybe made by Hasbro, but it's still important to keep. Hmm. And so I, my house and my storage units and everything was filling up with all of this. And, and I'm very aware uh, that I'm old. I'm older. I'm, I feel very young at, at 69, but you can't keep everything forever. And so when I uh, founded the museum and then made it into a nonprofit was with the whole idea that nobody was collecting this, nobody was saving it. And in fact, uh, I, as an obituary writer, was noticing over and over again, nobody was noticing cryptozoologists. They were noticing politicians, rock stars, and criminals. Yeah. So I decided there needed to be a, a redirection of energy. And then uh, why not create a museum so that these artifacts can be used for educational and scientific purposes? And so that's it's been a very successful venture uh, in which, you know, I'm certainly not getting rich from it, but I feel rich internally uh, and very wealthy that I was able to come up with this idea that has fascinated and actually uh, so many people are behind. The fundraising that we do is, is almost constant because we um, we live on a month-to-month -month budget with admissions and gift store sales. I'm hoping in the next uh, year or two to have a little bit more time and and write grants uh, because I certainly worked at a university as a, with the Muskie School uh, uh. for 13 years and wrote $8 million worth of grants that the university used but I didn't get the money. <laughs> but <laughs> but now, I'm, now I'm doing what I want, and I'm very happy the museum is successful. And, you know, it usually gets on four or five best of weirdest museums in the world every year, and we're very, very happy with it. And the, the dedicated staff and just the, the patrons that come are so fascinated with it. We're now getting uh, busloads of kids and tours and uh you know, people coming by. So that's really helping us out. 
Yeah, like I said, it's a wonderful experience. Uh, we at least we we had a wonderful experience, and I have to say, I, I my father in law sort of insinuated himself into my trip as well, and, and I was a little like nervous about that. He's a retired scientist, and so he's very skeptical about all this sort of thing. And I thought he was just sort of ruin the experience, but he had a blast there as well, uh, and he found it very fascinating. I think because he could see the the critical thinking that's really going on uh, at the heart of this. This is not just charlatanism. Uh, this is actually uh, a form of science, and I, it was it was uh, a really great time that we had. And I could tell that it's a, a terrific uh, little community that you've built around that place. And uh, I'm really really happy, uh, Mr. Lauren Coleman, to have you here on the show today. Um, anything else you'd like to add? How, no, how can we thank thank you so much for saying all of that? Those are the kinds of reviews we hope for and wish for, and it, it's good to hear feedback like that. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell everybody how they can uh, look up the museum, like what the website is and all that? Sure. The, the exact website is Cryptozoology Museum, all one word, dot com. And we're actually, if you, people do come to Portland, Maine, just ask for Thompson's Point. Uh, that's our new location. It's a really easy one to find. And I'm just amazed. We've had people from Nepal and Spain and France and Japan and all over. It's just most of the people, of course, from the United States. But uh, I, I do have to tell this one story. We had some people from New Mexico, and they came to the museum. They finally arrived in Portland, Maine. And they got to the door, and they were like out of breath, like they'd actually walked all the way from New Mexico. <laughs> and uh, so I was, you know, said, come on in, you know, just uh, get set. And they said... Oh, we're so happy. We finally made it to Canada. So <laughs> so I do want to let people know Maine is still in the United States. So, so we're very happy to. you don't have to use your passport to get into the, the museum. <laughs> nope. Not at all. Oh, wow. Yeah, they were a little south. That's, uh, that's yeah, yeah. up. They um, almost made it. <laughs> well, Lauren Coleman, thanks again. Uh, I really do appreciate that, uh, and good luck with all you do in the future. Uh, I'm a big admirer of you, and this is a, a kind of a bucket list thing for me to actually get to talk to you. Uh, I really, really appreciated the, the opportunity. Well, Daniel, you're very welcome. It's been a lot of fun to be here today. And there you have it, folks, the great Lauren Coleman. Uh, what a lot of fun I just had doing that. This is a, kind of a dream come true for me. I'm a little bit on cloud nine still. Uh, but I want to remind you, if you like the show, uh, go to iTunes, give us that uh, review, that five-star review and a, and a nice uh, and a nice rating, five-star rating and a nice review, excuse me. And also, don't forget, we have a website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com, where you can check out what we do. There's a little blog there. You can leave comments and all that. And don't forget to like the Facebook page. That's a very important part of other people discovering the show as well. And we're also on Twitter. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm there. Um, with the rest of you. So uh, thanks again for listening and have a great day.